Our New Testament scripture reading is from Acts chapter 15. Very timely portion of scripture to be reading, tying in very well with the sermon this Lord's Day. So listen closely to the reading of God's word from Acts chapter 15. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders. And they declared all things that God had done with them. But there arose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God which knoweth the hearts beareth them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as they. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, James answered, and uh, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles, upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, 
being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Then pleased it the, the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, Ye must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which if ye keep yourselves ye do, shall do well, fare ye well. So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle, which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. And Judas and Silas, being prophets, also themselves exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. And after they had tarried their space, they were let go in peace from the brethren unto the apostles. Notwithstanding, it pleased Silas to abide there still. Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And some days after Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches. The baptism of infants either stands or falls over the relationship of circumcision to baptism. For if it is true, as our Baptist brethren affirm, that circumcision and baptism do not have the same essential meaning and are not signs and seals of the same spiritual promises in the Old and in the New Covenants, then we cannot appeal to the practice of infant circumcision as a basis for infant baptism. However, if it is true, as our Reformed forefathers have testified, that circumcision and baptism do have the same essential meaning and are signs and seals of the same spiritual promises in both the Old and New Covenants, then we can appeal 
to the practice of infant circumcision as a warrant for infant baptism. Dear ones, it is not that we who believe in infant baptism do not see any differences at all between circumcision and baptism. We do see differences. But these are not differences as to the essential meaning and purpose of circumcision and baptism, but rather differences as to various circumstances surrounding circumcision and baptism. For example, some of these uh, various circumstances that surrounded circumcision. Circumcision was administered to males, females being represented by the males, whereas baptism is administered to both males and females. Circumcision pointed forward to a Christ who was to come, while baptism points back to a Christ who has already come. Circumcision was primarily applied to Israel. Baptism is applied to all nations. Circumcision was a bloody ordinance pointing to Christ's uh, crucifixion on the cross, which which was not yet accomplished. However, baptism is a bloodless ordinance pointing to Christ's work upon the cross, which is now already accomplished. It is important to note that these particular differences that I just mentioned, again, are not essential, fundamental differences as to the meaning or as to the purpose of these two God-ordained sacraments. For both circumcision and baptism are signs and seals of the one covenant of grace. They are both our rights of admission into the one visible church of Jesus Christ under both the Old and New Covenants. They both seal promises of spiritual benefits like the putting off of the old sinful man and the putting on of Christ, the receiving of righteousness, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life through Jesus Christ. They both seal promises of temporal benefit as well, like that of food, clothing, and shelter to God's people. Finally, the promises represented and sealed by both are realized only in those who are united to Christ, not by those who merely receive the outward sign. Differences that surround circumcision and baptism in particular circumstances, do not prove an essential difference as to meaning and purpose between circumcision and baptism. Let me illustrate for you this very important point. If a family had an old wood-burning stove over which they cooked their food, but decided it was time to replace it with a new electric Stove, would those stoves, those two stoves, be different, essentially different, as to meaning and purpose? <clears throat> Since the essential meaning of these two objects is that which is an object which generates heat, and the, the essential purpose of both of these objects is that 
or to cook food, we may say that they are essentially the same in meaning and in purpose, although they are very different in many other circumstances. The wood stove generates heat by wood. The electric stove generates heat by electricity. The wood stove is black. The electric stove is white. The wood stove is more difficult to start than the electric stove. The wood stove and the electric stove hardly resemble one another as to appearance. And yet they have the same essential meaning and purpose. Therefore, because they have the same essential meaning and purpose, listen closely, the electric stove may replace the wood stove. However, if the same family removed the wood stove and replaced it with a refrigerator, they would soon find out that a fridge cannot replace a wood stove. But they are not the same in meaning and purpose. A fridge does not generate heat and it is not used to cook food. And so the issue in today's sermon is simply this. Is circumcision to baptism what the wood stove is to the electric stove? Or is circumcision to baptism what the wood stove is to the refrigerator? Is there an essential difference in meaning and purpose between circumcision and baptism? And if there is, it must be proven by our Baptist brethren with clear evidence from the new covenant. But as we shall see, not only is there no clear evidence for a fundamental difference in meaning and purpose between circumcision and baptism. There is actually, to the contrary, clear evidence for an agreement between circumcision and baptism in their essential meaning and purpose. Last Lord's Day, we answered the question, what is the meaning of circumcision? This Lord's Day, we shall answer the question, what is the relationship between circumcision and baptism the simple answer to this question is circumcision is to baptism what the old covenant is to the new covenant there is anticipation of a Christ to come in the circumcision of the old covenant whereas there is a realization of a Christ who has come in the baptism of the new covenant simply stated that is the essence of the relationship as we shall see from our text for this Lord's Day in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. If you have your Bibles, would like to turn there with me. We will be seeking to answer this question. What is the relationship between circumcision and baptism? The human author of this letter to the Colossians was the Apostle Paul who wrote by inspiration of the Holy Spirit from his prison cell in Rome between the years approximately 58 to 60 A.D. Paul wrote in order to encourage the Christians in Colossae to stand firm against the false teaching that was being promoted amongst them. Of particular influence was that of the Jews who professed Christ but who perverted the gospel of Jesus Christ by requiring circumcision and other ceremonies of the Old Covenant as necessary 
to the Christian life. They maintained that Gentile Christians yet needed to be outwardly circumcised and observe the ceremonies of the Old Covenant to be full and to be complete in Jesus Christ. Look with me at Colossians 2, verse 8, where Paul says, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Particularly, the tradition of men and the rudiments of the world are particular allusions to this particular false teaching that was being promoted by, by the Jews in their midst. You remember Jesus Christ brought very severe accusation against the Pharisees because they followed the traditions of men rather than the commandment of God. And also this particular phrase, the rudiments of the world, uh, the elements of the world, it's, it's referring to that which is elementary, that which is for the childhood, as it were the ABCs. You see, the old covenant was like the ABCs for God's people. But now God's people have graduated, they have become adults in the New Covenant and have left the rudiments, the elements, the elementary things of the world and these that were contained in these ceremonies like circumcision, the dietary laws, and so forth. We see as well a, a reference to these same ceremonies in Colossians 2.16 where Paul says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. That is the Jewish Sabbath days. The purpose of Paul in this brief letter is to demonstrate the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ over all the vain wisdom of man and the supremacy and sufficiency over all those Old Testament ceremonies, those Old Covenant ceremonies. For he says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, For in him, that is in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Ye, ye are complete. Ye are made full in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has purchased in the new covenant all that you need for the Christian life, Paul says. You see, Paul is not declaring the old covenant as it was instituted by God for that particular period in time to be one of law without grace. That's not what Paul is saying. But rather, he is declaring the new covenant in Christ shed blood to be the realization and the fulfillment of all of the ceremonies of the old covenant. Thus, circumcision has lost its religious significance as a sign and seal of the covenant of grace in the new covenant. It does not add anything to our faith or obedience in Jesus Christ. We are complete in Christ without it. 
We are complete in what Christ has revealed to us in the New Covenant. Now, there seems to be, as we look at Colossians 2.11, there seems to be an implied objection on the part of the Gentile Christians in the church of Colossae, to which Paul responds. This implied objection might be framed in this way. We have been told by these false teachers that without circumcision we are in fact not complete in Christ. What do you say to this, Paul? Well, Paul's response is found in verse 11, Colossians 2.11, where he says, In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Paul says here, in effect, you have already been circumcised in Christ and therefore have no further need of an outward circumcision. You already have the reality to which that outward circumcision pointed in Christ Jesus. For when you were united to Christ, you were spiritually circumcised by Christ. And having removed from you the guilt, the power, and the penalty of sin, you are now a new creation in Christ Jesus, having received from Christ regeneration. You've been born again and have new life. Receiving from Christ sanctification so that he is, he is mortifying. So he is putting to death the sins which manifest themselves in our lives. He is causing us throughout this life to become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ gradually through a process. You have received justification where the Lord has imputed to you and to your account the righteousness of Jesus Christ and has forgiven you all your trespasses and he has given you everlasting life. You have all that you need in that you have been spiritually circumcised by Christ. You do not need this outward circumcision. For Jesus Christ is the author of this inward circumcision. It is the circumcision of Christ. Now let me make some observations at this point about this verse. First of all, if spiritual circumcision is the work of Christ in the New Covenant, as taught here in Colossians 2.11, it must have been a work of Christ in the Old Covenant as well. As we see in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, where it says, The Lord will circumcise your heart. For the uncircumcised and sinful heart of man has only one remedy. There are not many remedies available. There are not many options available to the uncircumcised and sinful heart of man. There's only one. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ who applies the virtue of his death and resurrection to all those who are united to him, whether in the Old Covenant or whether in the New Covenant. The same virtue, the same power is applied. Now, second observation. If this spiritual circumcision by Christ is what outward circumcision in the flesh signified and sealed, 
Then, as we noted last Lord's Day, it was not a mere national sign nor a mere external sign of temporal blessings and the Old Covenant. It was primarily an external sign of spiritual blessings in Jesus Christ, both in the Old and in the New Covenants. And if this is the case, why was it applied to infant children who could not yet exercise faith in the Old Covenant, if that is what it signified and sealed? Because... God ordained that the infants of professing believers in the Old Covenant should be included in the promises of spiritual blessings along with adults who could believe. These spiritual promises were made to all who received circumcision, whether infant or whether adult. But they were only, that is, these spiritual promises, these spiritual blessings were only realized by those who were spiritually circumcised by Christ, spiritually united to Christ. In fact, in the very first sermon preached after the death and resurrection of Christ in the New Covenant, on the day of Pentecost, Peter made the same promises to Israelites and to Gentiles who would be brought into the visible church by the outward call of the word in Acts chapter 2, verse 39. The same promises are made. And listen again how these promises are framed. For the promise is unto you, speaking to the Israelites who are gathered there, who could hear, adults obviously, those who would be called by the word, into the visible church, the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call, even to the Gentiles whom the Lord will call by his word into his visible church. Dear ones, just as there were two types of Jews, those who were Jews outwardly circumcised only in the flesh and those who were Jews inwardly circumcised in the heart. So we are taught that to trust in mere outward signs is dangerous to our soul. It is true of so many professing Christians today that they are merely trusting in an outward sign. They're merely trusting in their baptism. They're merely trusting in the fact that they verbally acknowledged and professed faith in Christ. They are merely uh, trusting in uh, other ordinances. The fact that they're a member of a church, that they pray, that they go through certain exercises. But you see, that's no different than what the Church of Rome teaches. That we are to put our confidence in external outward signs to save us. That is not the case at all. That will only lead to our destruction. It is to be merely a Jew outwardly. It is to be merely a Christian outwardly. It is not to have an inward circumcision like Jesus Christ. And so I ask, where does ultimately your hope 
and your confidence rests when you're struggling with your daily sins? Is it in Christ and the spiritual promises that he has made to you in the covenant of grace? That he has already overcome sin for you? That he will give to you the grace that you need to overcome those daily battles, the struggles with whatever sins are in your heart and your life? Is that where your confidence is? Is in the promise of God? Where ultimately does your hope and firm assurance of your daily provision for your food and clothing and shelter rest? You need a job. You need to provide for your family. You want to go to school to be trained. You have other types of temporal desires. Where does your confidence rest? in meeting those temporal obligations in this life. You must rest in the promise of God. God is faithful. God will keep you. God will sustain you. God will provide for you. He has promised already to do so. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's a promise in the new covenant of your temporal provision. Everything we need, and I don't mean some things, I mean everything we need, both of a spiritual and of a temporal nature, are found in the covenant of grace. They are promised to us in the covenant of grace by God himself. Cling, therefore, to his promise, not to mere external signs. God uses those mere external uses those external signs to encourage our faith, to confirm us in our faith, to strengthen our faith. But they are not the object of our faith. It is Jesus Christ and His promise that is the object of our faith. Now, as we look at Colossians two twelve, another implied. Objection is raised in the mouth of the Gentile Christians of Colossae. And we might frame this objection in this way. But those in the Old Covenant had an outward sign and seal of that inward spiritual circumcision. What outward sign and seal of that spiritual circumcision by Christ do we have in the New Covenant? Paul declares in verse 12 that the outward sign and seal of spiritual circumcision is baptism in the new covenant. Listen to what he says. And I will read again verse 11 so as to see the connection here with verse 12. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Thus Paul counters this objection by saying in effect this, you have not only received the true spiritual circumcision, 
but you have also received an outward sign and seal of that spiritual circumcision, namely, baptism. For outward baptism signifies and seals essentially the same thing as outward circumcision. That is, it signifies and seals the removal from the side of man of sin, just like circumcision to signify the removal of sin from the side of man. It signifies as well a resurrection to new life, just as circumcision, as we saw last Lord's Day, was a sign and seal of the righteousness of faith and eternal life. As declared concerning Abraham. So, baptism, burial, removal of sin, circumcision, the cutting away and removal of sin, baptism, resurrection to life, circumcision, reception, imputation of Christ's righteousness and eternal life are both and all share the same essential meaning together. The spiritual blessing of death to sin and resurrection to new life, however, are not realized, as we've already noted, in the lives of those who trust in the mere power of the sign, but in those who trust in the power of God to accomplish His salvation in their lives. Those are the only ones who truly are circumcised within, receive the internal, the spiritual benefits that we see signified and sealed in outward circumcision and outward baptism. Now, again, I'd like to make some observations. As I did in verse 11, I'd like to make some observations concerning verse 12. The first is this. When we come to verse 12, now this may not mean a whole lot to some of us, but I think it's important to mention because it's a grammatical issue. The first phrase there, buried with him in baptism, is a participial phrase. And a participial phrase either modifies a verb uh, 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 the subject of a verb or an adjective and in this particular case this particular phrase is grammatically connected with the subject of the sentence the subject of the sentence goes back to verse 11 which says in whom also ye are circumcised that's the subject of this sentence a rather long sentence but that's the subject ye are Circumcised, in whom ye are circumcised. Now, the, the significance of this is that the same ones in Christ who have received this circumcision without hands also receive the outward sign of baptism, which is what we see in verse 12. Here is a grammatical link, if you will. This is the point. This is the connection. You need to really grasp this at this point. Here is the grammatical link between the meaning and purpose 
of circumcision and baptism. It is clearly demonstrated at this point. Baptism is the outward sign to those same ones who were inwardly circumcised. Therefore, what circumcision means, the outward sign of baptism must mean the same thing. If this sign of baptism represents that, they must have the same meaning. They must function and have the same purpose in mind. A second observation. Thus, if external baptism signifies and seals a spiritual circumcision in the new covenant, just as did external circumcision in the old covenant, and if infants receive the external sign of spiritual circumcision in the old covenant, what prevents them from receiving the external sign of spiritual circumcision in the new covenant, namely baptism? If they could receive in the old covenant the outward sign that pointed to spiritual circumcision, what has occurred in the new covenant that would prevent them from receiving the outward sign that points to the same spiritual circumcision in the new covenant? Nothing unless God himself were to specifically, clearly tell us that infants and children ought not to receive baptism in the new covenant. Nothing else should cause us to come to a contrary conclusion or a different conclusion than that they also are entitled to the same outward sign and seal of that inward circumcision as they received in the old covenant. A third observation. This passage also implies that outward baptism has replaced outward circumcision as the sign of the promises made in the covenant of grace. For Paul does not tell the Colossians that they should be externally circumcised as a token of their inward or spiritual circumcision, but rather says they've already received the outward token of that inward or spiritual circumcision when they were baptized. Thus, baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign of admission into the covenant of grace. But here a question is raised, perhaps raised by some of our Baptist brethren. How can baptism relate to infant children when Paul states in verse 12 that the burial of sin and the resurrection of life signified in baptism are realized through faith? Notice what he says. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Well, a similar question might be asked. How could circumcision relate to infant children when the removal of sin and the imputation of righteousness signified in outward circumcision was realized through faith? And since Infant children could not exercise faith. Why did they receive the sign in the Old Testament of those same spiritual blessings and promises? For since we have now proven, dear ones, that circumcision and baptism essentially mean the same thing, 
and that they signify and seal the same covenant of grace. Baptism replacing circumcision now and now that Christ has come. We may conclude that an objection against infant baptism is an objection against infant circumcision. Dear ones, listen to this. This is the resolution to this particular objection that's just been raised. Faith precedes circumcision or baptism when one comes to Christ from outside the visible church. Like Abraham came from outside the visible church. Like Cornelius or like the Ethiopian eunuch came from outside the visible church. Faith precedes circumcision and baptism in those cases. However, circumcision in the Old Covenant or baptism in the New Covenant precedes faith when one is born within the visible church by virtue of at least one believing parent. So there is a difference to be gleaned here. Thus I conclude that Paul teaches in Colossians 2, 11 and 12 that circumcision and baptism have the same essential meaning and purpose and that baptism as the sign of entrance into the visible church of the new covenant has replaced circumcision as the sign of entrance into the visible church of the old covenant. All of which implies that if infants could be circumcised in the old covenant of grace with a sign which signifies and seals removal of sin and reception of life through Christ, then nothing but the clear prohibition of God himself in the new covenant will prevent infants from being baptized with a sign which signifies and seals removal of sin and reception of life through Jesus Christ. I said I was finished. I am finished with, the, with that text. But I do want to briefly respond to some final objections that may be raised by some of our Baptist brethren. <clears throat> the first possible objection is this. If circumcision and baptism are essentially the same in meaning, why did God replace circumcision with baptism? I would respond because circumcision was a bloody sign of the old covenant of grace which anticipated the death of Christ whereas baptism is a bloodless sign of the new covenant of grace which is now realized in the death of Jesus Christ. In fact, the same question may be asked about Christian, the Christian Sabbath of the new covenant replacing the Jewish Sabbath of the old covenant. The Jewish Sabbath and Christian Sabbath, dear ones, have the same essential meaning. They both point to our eternal Sabbath in heaven, which is secured by Christ's redemptive work, according to Hebrews 4. God would have a new Sabbath in the new covenant to testify of Christ's resurrection. And so likewise, the Lord would have a new sign of the new covenant, which would signify our entrance into the new covenant, namely baptism. A second objection. Why did Paul have Timothy circumcised in Acts 16.3 if baptism replaced circumcision? Well, the answer is actually given in Acts 16.3 itself. Turn with me there, if you will. Acts 16.3. 
<clears throat> him, that is Timothy, would Paul have to go forth with him? Paul wanted to take Timothy with him on his missionary journey. And took and circumcised him, here's the reason, <clears throat> because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. <clears throat> Paul did not circumcise Timothy as a sign of the covenant of grace or to fulfill some religious obligation, but as a means to avoid conflict with the Jews who lived in the area so that the message, the gospel which they presented, would be received more readily by these Jews. It would have not been received at all by, through Timothy if Timothy were not circumcised because the Jews looked upon circumcision in such a religious nature that they would not have received their testimony at all. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 what his way of approaching both Jews the law that I might gain them that are under the law to them that are without law that is Gentile, Gentiles as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I may gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I may, might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. <clears throat> Paul says in Galatians 6.15 that circumcision or non-circumcision is nothing in and of itself for those who are in Christ anyway. The issue is how is circumcision being used? Is it being used to make oneself acceptable before God? Or is it being used to avoid conflict with the Jews so that the gospel might go forth? That was how Paul used it. Not as a, not as a sign of the covenant of grace. A third objection. Why did the apostles allow the Jewish Christians to continue the practice of circumcision if in fact baptism had replaced circumcision? Again, let us look at Acts 21, 21. Here the apostle Paul comes to Jerusalem and uh, doesn't exactly have a very popular following amongst the Jews. Uh, they don't care a whole lot for the Apostle Paul. Uh, and we find, <clears throat> let's begin with verse 20. We find these particular words. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. That is the customs of the old covenant, the ceremonies. <clears throat> Here the certain of the apostles, the brethren in Jerusalem, uh, basically 
make known to Paul that it would be a good idea to, again, so as not to cause a, 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 a stumbling block for the Jews, to practice amongst the Jews, not the Gentiles, but amongst the Jews, some of these particular ceremonies, again, so that they might continue to have more inroads amongst the Jews, but also so as not to cause those who had professed Christ who were Jewish and still practicing some of these ceremonies so as not to cause them to be offended and to fall away from Jesus Christ. The Synod at Jerusalem, which we read in our New Testament scripture reading today in Acts 15, had decided that Gentile Christians need not be circumcised or keep the ceremonies of Moses. However, they did not prevent the Jewish Christians from doing so for the time being. For the time being. Since they had for hundreds of years looked with honor upon these ceremonies given to them by God. With the Jewish Christians, the apostles gradually weaned them from the ceremonies of the Old Covenant and gave the ceremonies of the Old Covenant an honorable burial over a period of time. The apostles, however, made it clear that circumcision and the other ceremonies could not justify them or make them more acceptable in God's sight. It was, it was not only circumcision, dear ones, that was practiced by the Jewish Christians, but it was also the Jewish Sabbath that was practiced by the Jewish Christians along with the Christian Sabbath. And other holy days, Nazarite vows, and dietary laws. It wasn't simply circumcision. And so we see it was, it was a greater degree. It was a larger mass of particular ceremonies from the Old Testament, not only circumcision. They even continued to meet for a period of time in the temple. You see, the same question may be asked with regard to the Jewish Sabbath and other ceremonies as well. Why did the apostles allow the Jewish Christians to continue to practice these things if they had been done away in Christ? This was a transition time in which the practice of old covenant ceremonies were fading away and being replaced gradually by new covenant ceremonies. Another, two more objections that I would like to briefly raise. The next objection is this. There appear... There appears to be an inconsistency. It is objected. There appears to be an inconsistency in the position of those who practice infant baptism. They baptize the children of professing believers, but no such requirement, it is maintained by some of our Baptist brethren, no such requirement was made for infant circumcision in the Old Covenant. It was simply a matter of blood relation, not faith in the parents trying to draw a distinction, again, between circumcision and and baptism. This is what this particular objection addresses. Well, let me say this. It is not true, simply. For it is implied at the very institution of circumcision where Abraham the believer circumcises his infant son Isaac. 
This was to be the pattern for all subsequent infant circumcisions. Believing parents were to circumcise their infant children. There's the pattern for us set for time to come during the Old Covenant. Furthermore, I think it's worth noting that there are many times that public confession of sin and faith in the Lord before the priest was required in which believing adults gave evidence of a public profession of faith under the Old Covenant. Note these places as representative of many other places in the Old Covenant. Leviticus 5.5 5. <clears throat> There we find these words. And it shall be when he shall be guilty in one of these things that he shall confess that he hath sinned in that thing and shall bring his trespass, trespass offering unto the Lord. So here was a time of confession of faith, confession of sin, profession of one's faith in the Lord to forgive him of his sin. This was not to be practiced once a year, but this was, again, a regular practice, not necessarily a daily practice, but a regular practice on the part of God's people personally and individually that they profess their faith before a priest in the Old Covenant. The same is true in Numbers chapter 5, verse 7. I'll begin with verse 5 of chapter 5. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, when a man or a woman shall commit any sin, that men commit to do a trespass against the Lord, and that person be guilty, then they shall confess their sin which they have done. And then it talks about how they are to make recompense as well. But they are to confess their sin, that which they've done. Is that not a, a public way of... Uh, professing one's faith? I dare say that it is. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 33, there Solomon, in dedicating the temple of the Lord, speaks of, if the people fall away, they will confess their sins to God. They will acknowledge God to be their God. In 2 Chronicles chapter 30, Verse 22. This is particularly interesting because this is at the Passover. And before coming to the Passover, we see a kind of fencing of the Passover in that they were to first yield themselves to the Lord. They were to yield themselves to the Lord. That certainly would imply a profession of faith in God. Actually, Second Chronicles 30, verse 8. I'm sorry, not uh, 30, 22. Let me read Second Chronicles 30, verse 8. <clears throat> now be ye not stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves 
unto the Lord, and enter into his sanctuary, which he hath sanctified forever, and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. Furthermore, those who were scandalous in any particular sin were to be excommunicated from the holy things of God under the Old Covenant. Ezekiel chapter 44, verses 7 and 9, there we see that God God says that those who are not only uncircumcised in the flesh, but uncircumcised in the heart, those who are scandalous sinners are not to come to the holy things of God. They are to be kept and prevented from coming. The fact that church discipline was exercised here and in the Old Covenant, church discipline was exercised that the table, as it were, of the Lord, the things that were holy to God were fenced from those who were scandalous in their lives. Again, indicates that adults did make public profession of their faith as well. Thus, dear ones, there is no inconsistency here at all between the Old and the New Covenant. Infant children were received into the visible church of the Old Covenant upon the good standing of their parents' faith and membership in the visible church. Just as is true in the New Covenant. And the final, last objection is this. Children were allowed to come to the Passover... Children, the uh, uh, Baptist objection is this, that children were allowed to come to the Passover in the Old Covenant, but are excluded from the Lord's Supper in the New Covenant. So likewise, children receive circumcision in the Old Covenant, but are excluded from baptism in the New Covenant. Where is the inconsistency in this? Well, the objection proceeds from a false premise that infants and small children were allowed to come to the Passover and partake of that sacrificial meal. That was not the case. That must be proven. It must not be asserted or assumed. It must be proven. It's actually implied in Exodus chapter 12, verses 26 and 27, that they did not, in fact, come. Small children, in fact, did not come to the Passover meal where it says and it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you what mean ye by this service here they are small children sitting and watching their parents take and eat of the Passover meal and when they do so these children ask the question what do you mean Not what do we mean, as if we're all partaking together, but what mean ye by this service, by what you're doing here, by this particular sacrificial meal and partaking of it? What mean ye by the service? Verse 27, That ye shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses, and the people bowed the head and worshipped. (laughs) 
You see, the Passover lamb was a holy sacrifice, not a common meal that everybody just sat down and enjoyed together. It was a holy sacrifice. Infants and small children did not participate in sacrifices or sacrificial meals until they were able to confess their sin and recount with understanding and, uh, the salvation of God. Until they could yield themselves consciously to God, as we see in Second Chronicles 30, verse 8. They were not to come to the Passover meal. I would have you note the example of Christ in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 and following. Buried in this historical account, seemingly, is something very, very important. It says in Luke 2:41, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. His parents went every year. But notice verse 42. And when he was 12 years old, they, they all, went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. It appears that the Lord Jesus went with his parents and the reason the scripture states specifically when, they were, when he was 12 is to note that particular point in time that he went to be examined by the elders in order to come to the Passover meal. You remember when his parents uh, left thinking that they were with him? What was he doing? He was asking questions of the priests and the elders and they were responding to him. He was basically being examined to come to the Passover meal. Thus, Durans, we have no clear testimony that infants or small children ate the Passover meal, nor that they ate and drank at the Lord's Supper. But we do have clear testimony that infants received the sign of circumcision in the Old Covenant and that they have not been denied that sign in the New Covenant of baptism. And that is the very significance of household baptisms. When we come to the New Covenant and we find household baptisms, that's the very significant. Those who could believe were baptized, but also infants who could not believe were baptized. For circumcision and baptism have the same meaning and purpose. Dear ones, if God has made... If God has made to our children promises of salvation in their baptism, I ask you, what have we done as instruments in God's hands to see those promises realized in their lives? What have we been doing? The promises by God have been made. What have we been doing? Have we been facilitating? Have we been helping? Or have we been hindering our children from receiving those particular promises? You see, there's nothing more important as it relates to our children than their salvation. Can you think of anything more important than that your children escape hell and enter into heaven to enjoy Jesus Christ for all eternity? Can you think of anything more important than that? We cannot presume their regeneration just because they are baptized. 
We must water, dear ones, we must water these promises that have been made to them by our earnest and fervent prayer every day for our children, crying out to God to remember His covenant to us and to our children. We must soundly instruct our children in the ways of the Lord, giving them sufficient knowledge and understanding Encouraging them to ask questions about the faith. What mean ye by this service? Not telling them those are dumb questions, but answering all of their questions that they have. We must give to them loving care and discipline. And dear ones, we must set a godly example before them. Because we can lead them astray And they will see clearly through us if our walk doesn't measure up to our talk. God calls us to set an example so as to lead our children to Jesus Christ. This is how we water the seed, the promises that have been made to our children. May God help us as parents to not simply rely upon the the outward sign but to see that sign signifies and seals promises God has made to our children. Let us hope, therefore, and put our faith and trust in the covenant of grace God has made. Please stand with me in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we stand amazed before thee, our Father, this day that thou would grant to us such exceedingly great, merciful, loving promises in this covenant of grace. And that, Father, thou would not only include we adults who have trusted in thee, but also, Lord, that thou dost include in these promises our children. We thank Thee, for, Father, our hearts are bound to our children. Our love is wrapped up in our children. And, Father, we continue to plead for our children. For children who, perhaps at this point, have not professed faith in Christ, or children who are older who may have walked away from Christ. But nevertheless, we continue to plead thy promises. We continue to call out to thee, O Lord our God, remember thy covenant. We rest all of our confidence, O Lord, in thee and in thy covenant promises. We ask, O Lord, that thou would cause these promises to be realized in the lives of our children for a thousand generations. We ask our Father that we would not take these promises for granted but that, Father, we would cherish them, that we would, Father, water them, that we would, Father, look to Thee to cause the fruit to come forth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.